morning. It's great to see everyone this morning. I'm not sure quite, I'm not sure quite where to begin. I expected it to be raining this morning, and I was going to make a lot of jokes about how Pastor Corey only lets me speak on days when it's supposed to rain, or when uh, it's daylight savings time, <laughs> um, or when there's a women's retreat. <laughs> um, but I'm, I am blessed to be here this morning. I'm glad to see everyone uh, make it out, and I thank the Lord for, for the sunshine and for holding off the wet weather. Um, and so I'm excited to, to bring the message this morning. Last Sunday, it was kind of raining, if you recall. And uh, Colson and I were driving to church, and he pointed out that on one stretch of the freeway, um, it was raining on his side of the car, the passenger side of the car, but it didn't seem to be raining on my side, uh, on the driver's side. Now, my car's not extra wide. You know, if you've seen me drive around in this little Toyota RAV4, okay, I don't drive like a big Chevy Suburban or um, what's a big, yeah, Ford Expedition, uh, you know, like those kind of cars that take up like two lanes on the highway, those big road hogs. Um, and so this was kind of an interesting phenomena that it seemed like, you know, it was raining on one side of the car and not on the other. Um, and it made me think, it made me think of the, the proverbial black cloud you know, the black cloud that hovers over people. And, and I don't mean hovering over Colson. <laughs> I just mean people in general, right? Where that dark cloud, um, it, it hovers wherever they go. And they can't get out from under it. And I can only imagine, and, and Fernando's testimony helps me to be more sensitive to, to that and to understand I can only imagine how difficult it is to wake up and not be able to feel the promise or the hope of each day. Where you can't see the sun or you can't feel its warmth because everything in life seems bleak, seems gloomy and depressing. And I know, I know some of you have been there I know some of you may be there even now. And this, and this morning, as we go through the passage, I'm praying that God will minister uh, to you, to us, because we'll talk a little bit about the darkness we experience in life and the honest struggle it is to see God's faithfulness and to be gentle and steadfast in those times. So before I... Uh, turn to the book of Ruth. Let's, let's pray and let's look to the Lord. God, I ask that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would breathe life into us and that you would cover us this morning with your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you would minister to us wherever we're at and that from your word we would draw, we would take what you want for us to take and everything else would just be left behind. Um, Lord, speak to us this morning 
and uh, use me as your vessel. And I pray that you would bless our congregation, our church family. You would bless those who aren't here as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we continue on in our series in Ruth chapter 1, this darkness that I'm talking about is where we find Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And this week, as I was studying the chapter, I, I found that this chapter, chapter 1, it really reads like a movie. I think the literary style, and, and they don't know the author of this book, but the literary style used has a theatrical feel to it. And I can almost imagine watching it on a big screen. It starts with big events happening quickly. And isn't that how movies usually start? It's like an explosion or, you know, or something happens and it's really big and it, it, it tries to suck you in. Verse 1, and this is chapter 1 of, verse, of Ruth. Verse 1, it says that there was a famine in the land. Verse 2, this man, his wife, and their two sons, they leave their hometown. So I can just imagine them in front of their, their modest house, like finishing packing up their stuff, getting in their wagon, and setting off for a distant land. You know, as the, as the wagon begins to travel down the, the road, like this dusty road, the camera pulls back, and then the dog runs after the wagon, right? You know that, that scene? Um, and you can tell that I, I used to watch too much TV when I was a kid. <laughs> I have these images in my mind, but this is what I see. And they go to this foreign land, and they try to escape the famine, but instead they're met with tragedy. In verse 3, only in verse 3 then, they've already moved, they've left this famine, the man dies. Chapter 1, verse 3, the man dies, and he leaves behind his wife and his two sons. Verses 4 and 5, the sons take wives in this strange land. And then after 10 years, they also die. And just like that, like boom, 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 in five verses, all that's left is the mother and her two daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law, all alone. And just like that, they're by themselves. And this is where the story really begins. This to me is where then the movie, it begins to focus. It, zero, it, it zeroes in on these three widows, their plight, their relationship with one another, and the heart-wrenching decisions they have to make. So let's, let's turn there to Ruth chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 22. And the scripture should also be on the, the, the screen above. Starting in verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. 
Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So this morning, you know, we're still in chapter one, and what were our primary texts is just a small part of Ruth's story. So it poses a little bit of an issue for me. See, there's two ways to approach the scriptures in a story like this. One is to read the passage and to draw lessons from it that comes from knowing what happens in the end, knowing, knowing the whole book, knowing what God is going to do. It's like picking up a book. I don't know if you ever do this, picking up a book, like a mystery book, and then like trying to go to the end and read and find out what happens. And then you, then you read the story. Right? Or seeing a movie, and before you see the movie, you know what happens in the end. The other way, of course, is to read the story from the very beginning, not knowing what's going to happen in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And in this way, we really feel what the characters are going through. And this is the approach we're taking here, this second one. Okay, the challenge then here in chapter 1 is that we must sit in the darkness, the difficult times that Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are experiencing. Because at this point in Scripture, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what God will do. So where we pick up in verse 14 is that Naomi is preparing to leave Moab and return to Bethlehem. And what she's trying to do is convince her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, not to come. She doesn't think it's in their own best interest to come with her. Now, something we need to understand is that Moab was not a good place. It was not a great place to be, especially for a Jewish woman from Bethlehem. It was neither friendly nor godly. Although Elimelech, Naomi's husband, moved the family there 10 years earlier to escape famine, the Moabites were not friends of the Jews. They did not worship the Lord God. They worshiped pagan gods. The main god they worshiped was this pagan god named Chemoth, Chemosh. Chemosh was an evil god. I mean, those the pagan gods were all evil gods. Chemosh was especially, especially, especially abominable. Chemosh commanded ch- child sacrifice. 
Okay, and this is the environment that they lived in in Moab for 10 years. So as difficult as it would be to pick up and move, Naomi's decision to leave was a step in the right direction. Now we, knew, we know Naomi's husband, Elimelech. We saw about him in chapter 1. He has died, and now her sons have died also. So for the second time, she's appealing. She's appealing to her daughters-in-law to go back to their mother's homes. So her daughters-in-law, they're Moabites. They're from that area. She's saying, go back to your mother's homes and try to rebuild their lives. She's saying, my sons, your husbands, are now dead. We have no one to protect us, no one to provide for us, and no one to take care of us. Because in this culture, in this culture, to lose the spouse, to lose the husband, to lose the man of the home, right, was devastating. It was disastrous. She says, go back to your mother's homes. You may be able to salvage your lives. And what Naomi is saying to them is that you have nothing to gain by coming to Bethlehem with me. And she's very convincing in the passage before we start reading. She's very convincing, and I believe that she's doing it with good intentions. I think she thinks it's the best for them. But the problem is, is that it's not true. Orpah, yes, Orpah and Ruth may be able to stabilize their lives if they go back to their families' homes. They may even eventually be able to find husbands because they're Moabite women. It depends on what the crop of Moabite men are, I guess. They may be able to find husbands and have a family. But to part ways from Naomi and to stay in Moab almost certainly means following pagan gods, worshiping idols, and never, ever coming to a knowledge of the one true God. You see, there are worse things than experiencing grief, loss, and hardship. And I say that with sensitivity and compassion for those who are going through those things. But to not know God To not have God is worse. To be relegated to worshiping idols or following false gods, which is what would happen to Orpah and Ruth, that's worse. Scripture says that if you have Christ in your life, you are blessed, you are rich. We're told this in Ephesians. Let me give you a few verses. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And Ephesians 3, 8, 
This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Now, I know I'm mixing metaphors here. I'm talking to you about the riches and the importance of having Christ in your life. But here in the passage, in the Old Testament, I know we're talking about these ladies following the God of Israel. Either way, Naomi seems to have lost sight of this. She's encouraging them to leave and return to their former lives. And sadly, here in verse 14, we see that Orpah, Orpah takes her up on it. She kisses her goodbye and leaves. She is so close to coming to know the one true God and being part of the kingdom of God. But she turns and she leaves. And then in verse 15, Naomi says to Ruth, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. And notice gods here is spelled with a lowercase g and it's plural. These are the pagan gods that the Moabites worship. She's returning to them. And Naomi says to Ruth, go back with her. And then in verses 16 and 17, some of the most tender verses in all of Scripture are said by Ruth. It says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. See, these are well-known verses. You may have heard them before. Some people use them in their wedding, in marriage ceremonies, In the face of her mother-in-law telling her to leave, telling her how sad and how bitter things will be if she remains with her, Ruth is unwavering in her commitment. According to rabbinic tradition, this is in Jewish tradition, the main theme here is what's called chesed. Chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. In Hebrew, chesed is a unique word that combines the idea of love and loyalty between parties in a covenant relationship. Okay, we don't have an English word like this, but it infers love, loyalty, steadfastness, faithfulness based on a commitment to one another. In Scripture, it's often used to describe God's steadfast love and his commitment to his people. And I think it's fair to say that Ruth demonstrated kessid to Naomi in the most gentle and tender way. As widows with no children, no community around them, no hope, in the darkest of times, Ruth remained steadfast. And let's not forget that she just lost her husband too. She's a widow. She's grieving. And yet she finds the ability to show compassion. When we talk about having a Christ-like gentleness 
to each other and toward one another, it doesn't come from a willfulness. It doesn't come from trying harder. We can't force ourselves to be more gentle, can we? It comes from a strength of character formed by God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's why gentleness is listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Ruth's Christ-like gentleness and resolve is the bright spot in this chapter. But that's not all. Ruth says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And this is really significant. And notice where God now here is spelled with a capital G and it's singular. She is resolved to be with the people of God and to follow wholeheartedly God himself. She's not only devoted to Naomi, which a lot of us can see and that's what we think of. It's not just about friendship, but she's devoted to the Lord. Now, I don't know how she received this message and experienced this in her relationship with Naomi or her late husband, Malon, how she became to understand the worthiness of God, of the God of Israel. But whatever it was, it fostered a faith in her. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She wasn't a Jew. This is partly a conversion story. And why is, this, why is this important? As we live, as we work, as we travel, as we go to school with people of different faiths and beliefs, we need to be mindful that we could be the source of them coming to know the Lord. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Your testimony, and I don't mean how you became a Christian, not that story. Your testimony, I mean how you live life before others. How you show love and forgiveness to others. How you put God first on a daily basis. That testimony is crucial for others to come to know Jesus. Let us keep that in mind wherever we are. As we continue on in the passage in, in, uh, in Ruth, verses 19 through 21, it reads, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Clearly, the 10 years since Naomi left Bethlehem have not been good to her. 
from the famine to leaving Bethlehem to her husband dying, then having both of her sons die, and now being thrust into this desperate situation. It's taken a toll on her appearance, on her health probably, her countenance, and her attitude. So much so that people could barely recognize her, those that knew her before. Naomi's name means pleasant. But she tells people to call her Mara, which means bitter. She has been through so much, and now she blames God. And while I think all of us can probably relate to Naomi and relate to how she feels at some level, we have to agree that bitterness in our hearts is a clear and present danger to our faith in God. Life's trials and hardships make us so susceptible to becoming bitter and resentful. I think Satan uses bitterness to take away the work and the joy of the Lord in your life. Satan tries to snatch away the good things God has produced in you and around you. And it happens so easily because life is full of hardship. And I just listened to Fernando's testimony and the pain and the suffering and knowing some of the experience that some of you have had, the difficulty. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble tribulation. But you don't need me to tell you, and you don't need Jesus, you don't need the scripture to tell you that life is hard, that life is difficult. But Jesus says it because at the end of that verse, he says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. In your dark times, in your hardships, in your sorrow, Draw near to Jesus. Stay plugged into him. Don't isolate yourself. Don't go into a hole. Give him your sorrows. Have people pray for you. Share your struggles. Talk to Pastor Corey or to myself. And resolve to reject bitterness. Make a decision not to become bitter. Because I think we all know, we know this about ourselves, we know this about others, that bitterness and resentment will eat us alive. And it will damage those things around us. We see it right here in Naomi's life. Woodrow Kroll says, and I quote this, when the root is bitterness... Imagine what the fruit might be. So, reject bitterness. The last verse and the last point that I want to make here in the message is that God is faithful. Okay, now you may be asking, what can we say about the Lord's faithfulness here in this passage? 
Well, maybe not a lot, but let me point out two things. One, Ruth's display of kesed is a reflection of God's faithfulness. Remember, kesed is a combination of love, loyalty, steadfast, faithfulness, and it arises from a deep commitment. First, I think Ruth's loyalty to Naomi was a sign of God's care and faithfulness to Naomi. Although Naomi probably didn't recognize it. She didn't seem grateful. She was bitter. But she probably wouldn't have survived without the companionship of Ruth. Imagine that Naomi is probably at this age 60, 70 years old. Okay? And going back to Bethlehem after all that's happened is like 60 miles away. Ruth's companionship was a blessing to Naomi and a sign of God's faithfulness. Second, I think Ruth is a reflection of God's faithfulness to us. Especially in times of hardship. The kesed that Ruth displays is the same kesed that God has for you and for me. It's the same kesed that God has for all of his children. Even in our darkest hours when we can't see it, like Naomi couldn't, God is steadfast in his love for us. And you want to know why? It's because God is a covenant God. And he always upholds his end of the bargain. So I think here in the passage, Ruth is a reflection of God. And it's a message to us of comfort and of God's faithfulness. Second, this is... The second point, God's faithfulness always reveals itself in the big picture. In verse 22, it says, they arrived as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the end of that, our passage. This is the end of chapter 1. And that doesn't mean much right now to us. But as we move into the next couple of chapters in the coming weeks, we will see how this was the start of God's care and God's provision for Naomi and Ruth. And isn't this how it often works? That God, in his sovereign wisdom, is doing things to bless us, doing things to work and to make fruit in our lives, which can't be seen or understood on a day-to-day basis. Things that we don't recognize are taking place, God is doing. Just like He brought them to the point of Bethlehem, to Bethlehem at the point of the, the harvest of the barley. God is at work. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of riches, of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how unfathomable his ways. So Ruth, Ruth chapter 1 is a challenging, challenging passage of Scripture because it is a dark time in the lives of the people in the story. But in the bitterness of life, Ruth's steadfast devotion and Christ-like gentleness 
is a reflection. It's a reflection of God's faithfulness to us. Let's look to him. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is honest, it is open. Um, Father, it is not calculated, um, it is not manipulative. Your word, Lord, is your heart. And we see the difficulty in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and, and, and Orpah, Lord, and we recognize those things in our lives, the struggles, the difficulties, the bitterness, and we want to lift those things up to you. Lord, we want to ask that you would take those things, you would help shoulder those things, that you would be uh, our rock and our stability and our hope. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless uh, each person here, each family here, that you would give us strength to walk with you and to give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.